Today is World Press Freedom Day. In Southeast Asia, journalists face both legal and financial challenges when reporting. But now, more than ever, quality journalism is important to keep people informed. And many journalists across the globe continue to do that despite the threat of the current pandemic. On today's episode, our Membership Engagement Manager, Deborah Augustine, speaks to Aisha Llewellyn, our Editor-in-Chief, about what it's like to be out and about in the field when most people are being told to stay home. Hello Aisha, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for having me. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about what it's like to be reporting right now. So currently, you write and edit for New Narrative, and you also contribute to other news outlets, and you also have your own newsletter, Hukum. So maybe we could start with, you know, what's the difference when you write for New Narrative versus other news outlets, and something you might put out on Hukum? So they're really very, very different, all of them, um, which is why I like writing for all of them, because it kind of gives you a good mix of different styles. When you, we write for New Narrative, it's very, very different. Um, we usually focus on long form. So, um, and when you write long form, you have a lot more space to go into something more in depth, but also the composition of the writing is very different. It's actually quite, it's pretty complex and quite complicated to write a long form piece. And then Hukum is kind of, it's usually long form, so it's usually between 1,500 words to 2,000. But I usually, with Hukum, it's more opinionated, or I usually pick a more specific angle with it. Um, I'm not as, because it's a newsletter and it's my, my newsletter, and I can write whatever I want. Um, I usually will focus on whatever angle specifically I want to focus on, and it's not so, I suppose that you would say it's not as balanced journalism in a way. Um, it's different for something, it's very different than something like either a news piece or what we would put out on New Narrative. Yeah, so that that idea of objective or balanced journalism, um, I think sometimes comes up with new narrative even, right, that we don't do objective reporting. So maybe you could speak a bit more about what you mean when you say balanced reporting. Yeah, it's quite, well, it's a bit of a minefield to discuss because... um, I think typically when we talk about balanced or neutral, neutral is an even worse word for it, um, or objective reporting, it means asking, you know, different sides their opinion um, and having all of that included in one article. And I don't necessarily agree that that's the right thing to do um, because, first of all, all journalists or usually we will have an opinion one way or the other, right? So in many ways our writing is never neutral or objective because, you know, like if you're left-wing or right-wing or whatever your political views are or your religious views or, you know, like whatever background you come from is going to colour what you write a little bit. Um, And I don't agree that everybody always should get to have an opinion. You know, if you were writing about you know, someone, you know, a group who had been persecuted um, by, say, a, you know, an organisation that was, you know, persecuting them because of their race, for example, to go and give the other side, like, a fair comment or the right of reply, you know, in journalistic terms, you are really supposed to do that. 
but would you want to give a mouthpiece to you know an extremely racist prejudiced organization that would use that opportunity to comment to incite more hatred and violence and things like that so i don't necessarily believe that we should ask everyone their opinion um and if your story is for example to go and talk about you know like a group of refugees for example just to take a random example you're going to hear their story you want to know what they have to say about their situation um, and so asking other people what they think is not necessarily you know the main thrust of the article and you know in a way does it matter i mean you're encouraged if it was a story for example about refugees you might ask you know like amnesty international or human rights watch or um UN, uh, like uh, the International Organization of Migration, but but really the story is about the refugees on the ground and their experience. So I wouldn't suggest that it's necessarily not balanced if you just spoke to them and wrote the piece from their experience. Maybe you could talk about how that's sort of folded into COVID coverage, because I mean, that's the, the main news story right now, right? Everybody's yes. reporting on it. So you know, keeping that in mind that it is kind of every outlet is putting out a COVID story. Um, how do you differentiate your own stories? How are you trying to make coverage of COVID stand out? Um, well, COVID is really like nothing we've ever seen before in that it affects absolutely everybody. And it's also because of social distancing and quarantine and self-isolation it means that a lot of journalists who would usually be in the field are now at home um, a huge number of news organizations have essentially benched their journalists and said they have to work from home for safety reasons so it means that it's very very difficult to report from the ground and it's kind of funny because um, traditionally in journalism we sort of look down upon um, news reports that are sourced just from a desk so if you just pick up the phone and call three academics and a scientist and like an NGO worker um, and then you write the story around that that's usually looked on as not being um, very thorough and in some ways being a bit lazy because you haven't gone down to like yeah the refugee camp or you haven't gone down to the scene of the tsunami you've just done it kind of based on background of people who are also not there so traditionally we would we would not look at that as kind of serious journalism. In this situation it's really difficult because so many people, you know, freelancers and journalists who work for media organisations are at home um, and as well they should be. Um, I think I don't look down upon anyone who's not in the field. I think it's perfectly understandable and in many situations it's the right thing to do to stay at home. Um, but it, it means that it's changed you know the news that we're getting in some ways going back to this very desk-based model which is you know usually not the best model um, and so in for me I'm here in Medan in North Sumatra in Indonesia and we are not under lockdown we're not quarantined um, we're not we haven't really been told in explicit terms to self-isolate so we are still able to go out in the field here which is a very privileged position for a journalist to be in um, and not one that I really take lightly. So for me personally, and by extension, New Narrative, because I write for New Narrative, um, 
I'm able to still go out and do those stories in the field, which is what I would always try to do anyway. Um, but I think more than now more than ever, having people out in the field is important because the numbers of people who are able to go out have, have shrunk um, because, yeah, so many people have been benched, essentially. Right. So, yeah, amongst the new narrative team, you're currently the only one who's still out in the field. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the re- <laughs> yeah, the rest of us, for the most part, are at home, um, either because we've, we're under government orders to stay home or the jobs that we're doing don't require us to go into the field, but you, you're still out in the field. Yeah. So could you tell us what that's like to be, you know, just out in the field during this time and also what it's like to be the only one in a, in a workplace that is in that position? To be out in the field at the moment is a very strange feeling because, like I said, I mean, none of us has experienced anything like this. And in journalistic terms, um, without meaning to sound kind of crass about it, you know, this is the age of the journalist. This is the, t- you know, I mean, like what a big story this is, right? If you look at it in journalistic terms. So to be able to go out in the field and report on such a big story is, uh, as I said before, you know, a great privilege to be able to do it. And I'm very grateful for my, um, the level of freedom that I still have compared to, well, you, for example, I know that you're um, in Malaysia, you've been, you've had to stay at home for quite a while. So it's not something that I take for granted. I'm very appreciative of it. But of course, it comes with, um, you know, a level of risk, which is a very significant risk, which and very different to other types of risk that I've had to take before. So it's it, and it's it, because we've never seen anything like this. It's very surreal. So, like for example, I mean, I was telling you the other day that I went to see the mass graves that they're digging here in Medan for COVID nineteen um, or suspected COVID nineteen cases, and you know, to stand and look at these mass graves for an illness that, I mean, at the end of last year, I'd never even heard of, and suddenly here we are, or it seems like it's been relatively sudden. It's a very, very surreal experience to be out and reporting on this. Um, and within the team, to answer your second question, I mean, I've we've, we've spoken about it at New Narrative, um, which I'm very appreciative of because it is a strange situation to find myself in to an extent that I'm living a very different life <laughs> or I'm, I'm doing a very different job in a way at the moment than everyone else. And I think, like I said to the team, it's, it sometimes feels a little bit alienating because I'm going through something that's very, very different. Um, I'm experiencing things that are very, very different and are very, um, that are very sort of confrontational so you know when you go and look at a mass grave it like it's right in front of you you know you can't ignore it you can't and it everything you've read and heard about this illness and what happens and and the death tolls you know it's it's right there you can't kind of turn away from it so my experiences out in the field and just the level of freedom that i have has been i wouldn't say difficult within within new narrative new narrative have been very very supportive but it's it's made me it's difficult for me to understand what it's like to have to stay at home and I think probably for the rest of the team it's difficult to understand what it's like for me to still be going out 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, we've discussed this more in depth as a team, you know, to try and understand your experiences, um, which I think has been helpful. You know, it's, it's good to, to understand that, yeah, like you just do have a very different reality um, and the risks that you're facing are really different than ours. Um, but I wanted to talk maybe with a bit more specificity about what being in the field is like right now for you as opposed to what it's been like in you know other situations you've been in that maybe were dangerous or risky what does it look like now specifically in some ways it's very different and in some ways it's very similar because anyone who knows my work knows that um I've often done disaster reporting as I would call it so I've gone and reported um on a tsunami um, I've reported on volcanoes erupting. Um, I've reported on boat sinkings. Um, so like if there's a disaster in North Sumatra, I'm usually gonna be there, you know? Like uh, terrorist attacks is another one that I've, I've gone and reported on. So it, that's very much in my wheelhouse and I'm very used to, I guess like the mechanics of that, like how fast you have to move, how fast you have to collect information. I'm, you know, I'm used to, to being in situations which are not particularly comfortable and 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 quite you know sad and um, and difficult to be in, but um, if you go and report on a tsunami or a volcano or a terrorist attack, you usually show up after the event has happened, and you show up when the danger has, to an extent, already happened and subsided. So. Sure, if you go and report on a tsunami, there may be an aftershock and there may be another one. Um, the same with a terrorist attack. You know, a bomb's gone off, of course, another bomb could go off. Um, but to an extent, the danger has already passed and you are there in the aftermath. And, you know, there are also issues with that, you know, about secondary illness. And, you know, if you're, if you're somewhere like where there's been a tsunami, where there are a lot of people who've died, you know, there's a lot of issues around around you know, sickness and just, just the environment that you have to be in. But the danger, so the danger is there, but it's not, it's very, very different from now because the danger is, has not passed. It's right in your face all the time. So every time you go out, you have to, you have to face the fact that um, you might get sick. And, you know, we're, I'm on the ground and I'm doing things which are, not just going out, but going to funeral parlours, going to hospitals, going to mass graves, going to uh, coffin makers, going to speak to families of people who've died. So it's not even that you're just going out. I mean, because, you know, going to the supermarket has a level of risk with it, right? Um, but it's, it's not even that. It's the fact that you're going to very specific places where there is a higher chance of you getting sick so it's a very confronting thing um, and it's something that I don't do lightly um, that I and I thought about it a lot before I in the in the very early days I thought about it a lot before I made the decision am I really going to go out in the field and do this and do this in the long term and that's another thing that's very different from disaster reporting if there's been a tsunami uh, or a terrorist attack you know you may work maximum maybe like two weeks and then that's it. 
So it's not just going out in the field and facing the danger. There's also the element of you're doing it day after day after day and there's no kind of, you don't know when the end is going to come. Yeah, I think that's the big thing that a lot of us are dealing, well, I guess everybody's dealing with is that we just don't know when this is going to end at the moment, right? Yeah. Even the best estimates are, are still estimates. Like it's a year and a half, two years. Like we don't, we just don't have a concrete answer to when it's it's going to end. But there's also the issue of press freedom, right? Uh-huh. Um, in well, generally in in the region in Southeast Asia, we have this this the challenge of reporting in in countries where um, we don't always have press freedom or there are very clear limits. Are there specific challenges you face reporting on COVID-19 in Indonesia from a aspect of, of press freedom or certain laws that may restrict what kind of reporting you can do? Um, I mean, you're right in that, you know, um, Southeast Asia does have issues with press freedom in some ways more than many other places in the world. In this case, I'm not sure it's necessarily worse than other places. I think there's a lot of secrecy around COVID-19 here, particularly if you go to hospitals, if you try and speak to doctors, if you try and speak to anyone who's really close to patients, uh, government officials, yeah, there's a real air of secrecy around it. And if you try to talk to families, there's a lot of stigma around um, having COVID-19 here or having a family member die. So that, like, those things are issues. I wouldn't, however, say I necessarily think it's worse here than in other places. I mean, we're not seeing, like, a huge number of, you know, reporters going inside isolation wings right because you just can't um there are also so many issues around things like patient confidentiality which exist everywhere so i wouldn't really say in this case i think it's more difficult in indonesia than it is anywhere else because this is a very specific situation um and i mean there are laws that can trip you up in indonesia the uuite law indonesia's electronic information and transactions law um which um has been used uh, since COVID-19 started um, to uh, prosecute people who've been sort of critical of the government. So that's something that's very specific to Indonesia. But even then, um, yeah, I, you know, it's difficult everywhere to report on this story just because of what it is, the dangers associated with it, and also the fact that much of it goes on is going on kind of behind closed doors in hospitals in isolation wings where the access is always going to be difficult anyway but you did you had gone to a hospital in indonesia um in in medan right um which is a covid center testing center um and i think when you shared pictures from that on your twitter um you were being mindful of the Indonesian electronic information and transaction law. Yeah, could yeah. could you speak about maybe like what a what were some of the things you had to be kind of careful about in that instance? <laughs> well, this we're very lucky at New Narrative, especially New Narrative Indonesia, because we have a legal advisor. Uh, Ranto Sibarani is our legal advisor for well Indonesia, but also New Narrative generally. We, 
the kind of work we do, we need to have a lawyer on staff. When I asked him about posting the pictures, he said to me that it was okay to post them, but, and as I said in the tweet, which you can see on my Twitter page, um, he said it was okay as long as I didn't, um, I didn't uh, give a personal opinion. Um, so the pictures I posted, for anyone who hasn't seen them, um, were at the hospital of the doctors and nurses in the doctors and nurses station, and they were they don't really have much PPE. They have some, but one of them was wearing a plastic raincoat, and I took a picture of that. Um, and so, yeah, the advice was it's okay to post it because you took the picture and that's what happened. You know, that's like that that was the scene in front of you, but. Um, not to give an opinion with it. So an opinion, for example, would be uh, the doctors don't have any PPE because the government hasn't provided them with any, because you don't know if that's true or not. The, you know, like the, the doctor in question may have just been wearing it because that's what she wanted to wear. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily um, know if that's true or not, um, but it's that kind of thing that you've got to be careful of. So saying, as I did on my um, Twitter page, this doctor is wearing a plastic raincoat is okay because that's a fact, but saying, you know, yeah, the government hasn't given them PPE or look at the terrible risks they're having to take or it, when you move into opinion and you start to make assumptions about what's happened, um, that's when you can get in trouble. But I think that that's also kind of, it's almost quite a good point because in Indonesia, you can say a lot, actually. People have this idea that you can't and that it's very... Um, that press freedom is kind of being muffled and that you cannot say and, and publish various things. I would say, um, in the time I've been here, I think that that's not true. You can pretty much put out anything you want, but it's the way in which you do it. And over time, you can see... You know, there have been instances of people who've posted something really quite innocuous, but the way in which they presented it, like with opinion or like with assumption, is what has got them into trouble. And I don't agree that, um, you know, you should get in trouble for posting an opinion. Um, but I think in Indonesia, the kind of the, the way to look at it is that you've just got to present things in a certain way or write things in a certain way. And as long as you do that, you can still get the point across and get the information out there. You just have to be a little bit mindful, more mindful about it than you would somewhere else. Right. So it's just kind of navigating what might be, what you might not be able to verify or validate with, with facts that you have in front of you rather than, than not being able to say something. Yeah. So I um, I'd, I'd like to maybe bring it back to that what you said earlier about the age of the journalists like yeah we've you've talked about it like <laughs> this is you know the age of the journalists this is maybe the biggest story of our century I I mean who can say yeah. right um what's going to happen wow. in 10 20 but but it is it is a huge news story and it is unprecedented in that every single person in the world is being affected by covid um what 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 do you mean by the age of the journalist and and how do you see the importance of journalism in this time the age of the journalist because this has never happened before 
a lot of it is very secretive, like I said, or not, ne- and, and perhaps not necessarily secretive, but like I said, you know, it's it's a, a medical issue is very different than um, something like a tsunami, which is right there in front of you. Um, you know, lots of things are happening behind closed doors. We don't know much even now about this virus. Um, so there's a real sort of like blank space around this story. And it's our job as journalists to start to fill those blank spaces in. Um, yeah, I think in a way that like we've never had a story like this really. I mean, it's kind of got everything to it. And, uh, and the fact that, again, like I said, people are having to be quarantined and isolate now more than ever the people who can go out need to go out and if you if you think about it in another way if there's a hurricane or a tornado or something who's on the ground medical staff people like firefighters who are evacuating people and then you have the journalists right standing in front of the hurricane or the tornado you know uh telling you what's happening um we're not looked at i don't think as frontline workers in the way that um medical staff are and I understand that, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't put myself up there with a doctor or a nurse who's who's directly saving someone's life. But we journalists are an incredibly essential part of what is happening now. Because if we were not there, if we were not going out, and we were not telling you what we are seeing, you wouldn't know. I mean, you really wouldn't know because you'd be at home and you wouldn't be able to see it yourself, you know? I mean, if you think about it in in another way, you know, like if there's a terrorist attack, there's like, you know, 20 people on the scene with their mobile phones filming it, right? But so many people are now locked away that, um, you know, we need journalists more than ever to be our eyes and ears, you know, your eyes and ears on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very true um, in essentially lockdown for over a month now in Malaysia, and it's going to be two months. And yeah, and it, 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 I have been kind of glued to my phone more than usual, trying to find out what's happening. And it's, you know, it is independent news teams that I'm looking to so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel that personally, just as someone who's who's trying to figure out, like, make sense of, of this whole thing and try and have some certainty, I guess, as much certainty yeah. as is possible. <laughs> and I mean, that's in this time. I mean, that's what we're doing, you know, like for all of us on the ground who are still able to go out or, or even journalists who are not on the ground, but are still, you know, yeah, speaking to experts every day or getting testimony a different way. Um, like getting nurses to email them or things like that we're trying to make sense of it as well Um, and there is so much to try and make sense of and so we are out there every day absorbing as much as we can and trying to see like for me to go out and witness and see with my own eyes and speak to people and really listen and really try and understand all the different like moving parts of this and then coming back and trying to put it in a way that's going to make sense to everybody else who can't go out and do that um and so yeah journalists are really the ones we're sort of like the conduit for for information 
in that we just we take all of it in and then we try and um, package it in a way that is going to um, be relevant and clear and coherent and helpful to other people. Um, but if we didn't have journalists going out and doing that, either there'd be, I think, a complete like, media blackout or there'd be, you know, the random bits of information all over the place that would be impossible to navigate. So again, the age of the journalist, we really need them at the moment. Yeah, I think so. Maybe I'll end with this question, which is kind of a big question. <laughs> okay. But what do you hope to achieve with your coverage? Yeah, that is a big question. <laughs> um, again, this is such a different situation. Um, I suppose I will go back to my usual answer when people ask me that about my work more generally. People often ask me, like, what impact are you hoping to have? Because I write a lot about human rights, about human interest, politics. Um, and I think people think I'm trying to, like, effect some kind of change or things like that. And, and actually, when I write, um, my, my goals are a lot less lofty than that. I hope people read it. I hope people take away something from it. I hope it's helpful if it can make people affect some kind of change or provide some kind of help, that's great. But I cannot, I try not to think about that when I'm reporting and when I'm writing because it, the task at hand becomes so much bigger than I am. So I just try and think, um, I'm just gonna write this to the best of my ability and then I'm gonna put it out there and whatever people take away from it, yeah, like it's up to them and like I hope for the best. And I still feel that way a little bit with this. I guess, like I said, with this, it, it's, I, I, would, I would ordinarily not kind of not say this. I think in this situation, it is true. Um, but I would ordinarily not say, I, I wouldn't say that I go out as a journalist to bear witness to things um, or to bear witness to, you know, these kind of moments in history. But I do feel in this case, it's, that's actually quite a fair thing to say. Like I said before, someone needs to go out and be doing it if other people can't. And I understand why so many people can't. And I don't, there's no, there's no like blame there. There's no kind of um, judgment that other people can't go out. But if I can, and I can see these things that are happening and document them and report on them, then that is my job. And I'm still able to do it and I will do it for as long as I can. So. Yeah, I mean, I have to go out and show people what's happening. That's what I'm supposed to do as a journalist. I mean, it's kind of funny. Um, I was talking to my daughter the other day. She's eight years old, her name's Lily. And um, it's difficult having kids and going out because, you know, there are obviously, you know, I'm very worried about the risks, both to me and, and to my family. So it's important for me that, to me, that my children understand what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Um, because they are at home and they've been off school for months. So to see me going out, they kind of don't understand it. And so I was trying to explain to them, do you understand why I have to go out and what I'm doing? And my daughter, so she's eight years old, she said, yes, you have to go out and you have to tell people the news. And I said, yes, but you know why that's important? She said, because it's dangerous and people have to know. And I thought that that was kind of a very simple, very innocent way of kind of explaining what I do. 
Yeah, I think that that is kind of a, a really good distillation of <laughs> of what you're doing right now. Yeah, out of the mouths of babes. It takes an eight-year-old <laughs> to explain my job. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me and um, explain kind of what you're going through. And, and I hope we can keep talking about um, the kind of coverage that you're going to be doing in the field, because I think this is a perspective that, that people don't often get to have. So I'm looking forward to more conversations. Yes, about. I am too. Well, stay safe, Aisha, <laughs> and um, we'll talk soon. Yes, thank you very much for taking the time. And that was Aisha Llewellyn with Deborah Augustine. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week. That's our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com. Memberships start at just $52 US a year. That's just $1 US a week. If becoming a member is not your thing right now, you can also make a donation at newnarrative.com. Your support is needed now more than ever. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Jumpa lagi. <laughs>